Welcome to the Keeping Kids Safe podcast. My name is Karen Cohn. I am the co-founder of the Zach Foundation for Children's Safety. This is your number one resource for all things related to your child's emotional, physical, and social well-being. Now I'd like to introduce my co-host and my friend, the Executive Director of the Zach Foundation for Children's Safety, Megan Ferraro. Hi, Karen. I can't believe the holidays are here already. It's such a magical time of year, but it's also a difficult time of year for many people, especially anyone dealing with loss. Grief can make this time of year particularly challenging, so I'm really excited that we have a special guest today, an expert who helps children and adults deal with bereavement and loss. Mary Coleman is a licensed clinical social worker that has worked with individuals in the bereavement field for over 25 years. Currently, Mary works at the Bereavement Center of Westchester, a counseling facility in New York that creates a safe and supportive grieving environment for children and families. In 1995, the Bereavement Center of Westchester created the Treehouse, a special program designed for children grieving the loss of a parent or sibling. In addition to counseling individual adult clients, Mary facilitates a spousal loss group, the Treehouse Group support after suicide group, and is trained in complicated grief treatment at the Center for Complicated Grief at Columbia University. Welcome, Mary. Thanks for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. First, I just wanted to start by saying that the Westchester Bereavement Center and the Treehouse is a place that I went to with my family after I lost Zachary. And we, my whole family, attended in 2007, in the fall of 2007, we went and we talked to several other bereavement uh, groups or bereavement facilities, and we really felt the most comfortable at the treehouse at the uh, Bereavement Center of Westchester. And we felt that those six weeks that we spent as a family after we lost Zachary was very healing. And I just wanted to say that to this day, we're still big components of the Treehouse and the Westchester Bereavement Center because of that, because of our personal experience. That is so wonderful to hear. It really is. Thank you for telling me that. We just wanted to take the time today, Megan and I wanted to talk through just your experience with families around bereavement and how, you know, different families talk about um, and process grief differently. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you and I were preparing for this podcast, you know, you had corrected me and saying, you know, I, I was always thinking about the the different stages of grief. And you corrected (laughs) me and said, you know, that that actually, you know, isn't um, a, you know, an accurate uh, uh, sort of uh, philosophy around grieving. And maybe you could start by clarifying that. Absolutely. Um, We've come a long way in in how we look at bereavement, those of us in the community and the research. And um, Dr. Elizabeth Klubert-Loss's stages were really fabulous around getting a diagnosis of terminal illness, you know, denial, anger, depression, all of those. Somehow along the way, they got kind of, in my opinion, forced fitted into bereavement. And we don't quite use them in the same way that we did in the past. We think in terms of bereavement around tasks, tasks to be completed. Stages, sometimes you have an idea of it being linear. You know, you do this and then you do this and you do this. 
bereavement is constantly changing and moving and it doesn't really follow in, in order. So that's the first thing about the stages that we found problematic. The other thing is, you know, back in the, um, this is going to reveal my age, back in the early 90s, I worked in the HIV positive um, community, age-related community services. Back then, when you got a diagnosis of HIV, there absolutely was denial. I watched the men I worked with go and get blood test after blood test, changing. That is so appropriate when you get a diagnosis, which was then terminal of AIDS. I have never met a grieving parent or a spouse that was in denial about the death of their child or a family member. It's just not the case. Could you have moments where you daydream? I had a mother say to me just the other day, you know, sometimes I look out the window and say, my daughter's at college. She wouldn't be here anyway. Maybe I'll see her at Thanksgiving. It's a daydream. It lasts a few seconds. And of course, she's back in reality. That's not denial. So we look at grief now in the sense of tasks to be completed, whatever order works for you. And I always say to all my clients, there's no rush here. Bereavement is long. It's, we hear people say it's a marathon, not a sprint. That is incredibly accurate. That saying it's marathon, not a sprint, I think underscores it takes a while. But there's something I like even more about that idea of it being a marathon, not a sprint. If anyone, not me, has been in a marathon or watched a marathon, you know that in the beginning, everybody's clumped up together. And as the race goes on, people separate. That's what happens within a family that's grieving. The first weeks, Karen, you alluded to those early six weeks. In the early weeks, everyone's clumped together. And as time goes on, you see husbands and wives moving at a different pace, children, surviving siblings, a very different pace. And we address all of that, at least I do in my work. So the first task, I'm getting around to tasks. The first task is, believe it or not, cognitively understanding the death. When someone has, let's say, a cancer diagnosis, it's relatively easy to get your hands around it. You've got MRIs, you've got CAT scans, you've got blood work. When the death is sudden, when there's been a tragedy, when there's been an accident, you don't have all of that concrete evidence as to how did the person die? How did this happen? You need to piece it together. So if it's been a car accident, where were they? What time was it? Did someone go through a red light? Think of all the questions you ask. You need to cognitively understand the death, death first and foremost. And that can be difficult. And let's say suicide. It can be difficult in some sudden accidents. That is the first task. And that could take quite some time for people. And this is the thing that's fascinating, at least for me, about bereavement is everyone's understanding doesn't have to match. It has to cognitively make sense to you. Your job is not to convince other people, no, 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 this is how it happened. You need to gather the information and have the death make sense to you. That's the first task. Then, of course, there is the pain, the reality. I use the word adaption. Through all of the tasks, roles are changing, 
and you are asked to adapt. I hate terms like new normal, moving on. I hate all of them. I do like the idea of adaption. Within a family, people are adapting. You mentioned treehouse. Treehouse really started with the understanding that if you were, let's say, in fifth grade or sixth grade, and your mom has died, your older sister has died, chances are you are the only fifth or sixth grader who's having that experience. You go to the treehouse, and suddenly you're in a classroom, small classroom, with other kids who are going through the same thing. Then suddenly you see just it'll wash over children what they're feeling, how it's not unusual, and they have a place to dump some of that pain that we talked about. And pain is a task. Kids will also talk about changing roles. That is the place where you might hear a girl say, you know, I used to be a big sister. Now I'm an only child. Someone else in the room will say, yeah, can you believe it? Like at dinner time, my parents just focus on me. And suddenly they hear that from seven other kids. And that's kind of the magic of Treehouse. But again, that's another task. Everyone's adapting. Roles are changing. And it's all happening at a really different pace, very different pace. Well, it's that support and that relatability that I felt for our family was healing in a way. Yeah. And hopefully what else happened for you, Karen, at the Treehouse, and I know certainly in my individual work, I see many couples who have lost a child. And the first thing I say to them is, this is not marriage counseling. We're doing bereavement work here. Our lane is very narrow at the bereavement center. And I'll say to a couple, there are gender differences in how people grieve. Men and women really do grieve differently different paces, different approaches. And the work, at least the way I approach it, is not about having the husband and wife compromise and meet in the middle. You would typically do that in marriage counseling, mm. set goals, meet in the middle. It's very different. It's, it sounds really simple. It's actually rather difficult. I want each person in the couple to make room for and respect where the other is without trying to tug them or bring them to their side. I'll give you an example. Typically, especially if the death was sudden, the woman, the mother, is more likely to go around and around and around the day or the days leading up to the death. I don't see that as often with the, with the husband's. So here's an an example. Um, I worked with a couple where little girl got sick very quickly out of the blue. And by the time they got this little girl to the hospital emergency room, it it was a dire situation and she died. The mother would come in week after week, sit in the same spot in my office. Week after week, she would go through, we should have picked a different hospital. I knew when I got in that emergency room, that doctor looked too young. Part of me wanted to ask for someone older. I didn't. And she would go around and around and around this. And her husband, at least when they were at home, would be quick to say, no, that hospital was closer. That doctor was perfectly good. It wouldn't have made any difference. Very much taking the stance of, and you know, 
there's no point in going back to that. It's done. We can't fix it. This is where we are. Two very different places. Again, the goal is not about let's convince her that, you know, you're, where you are makes sense. And let's not convince the man. No, 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 no. You should be going around and around about that day too. The key is for the husband to sit beside, I use the term bear witness and be present for her doing that over and over and over again. And she needs to be able to sit beside his a little bit more go get him. I have many husbands who are pursuing lawsuits. Very often, the mother might want nothing to do with it. Okay, you're going to be beside him. It's not going to change him. Let him do his thing, so to speak. It sounds so easy, but it's actually incredibly hard to sit beside someone and bear witness and let them be in that space. Natural bereavement, it wears. The sharp edges rub off. And over time, those images, that story starts to soften. It does happen. Healthy bereavement is constantly moving and changing. So it's also in your in your marriage or in your relationship, just accepting the other person for where they are in their grief. And your children. Nine times out of 10, I watch the surviving siblings move at a much faster pace. And I've heard mother say to me, how can he be thinking about or she thinking about a sleepover? I can barely brush my teeth and get like a clean pair of pants on and they're ready to go. I love to see that in kids. I love to see that movement and that pace. It's all good stuff. It really is. Um, But it can be hard on the parents because very often they can feel a little bit left behind. Absolutely. We, I think in you know, in my family, and of course, in every family, it's different, but I feel like for uh, my oldest, Jenna, when she was, she was seven, um, or yeah, she was seven when Zachary passed away. And so we had to go back to school, um, you know, like a, a month and a half later, and we had to, you know, get up every day and get back in routine. And as I look back, I always tell Megan this, like that saved me. That routine Mm -hmm. saved me. And for Mm -hmm. me, having to be strong for her and my other younger children is also what, you know, moved me forward in the process. I love distraction. Whenever anyone says to somebody, you're in denial, you're too busy, you're working too hard, you're running around. I'm like, let it be. The grief is going to be there. You will touch it and tackle it when it works for you. Distraction is healthy. And I'm all for it. I really am. So yes, your kids kept you distracted. They kept you on track. Things needed to happen. You know, when there's been a death in the family, and we certainly have seen this at Treehouse, children are frightened. Something has happened in their family that's really actually very difficult to understand. If we have a hard time understanding it with all of our life experiences and our cognitive abilities, imagine what it's like for third grader a seventh grader. So with, with at Treehouse, we are very aware that children are frightened. We encourage parents to be as direct and clear as possible in their communications with children. 
typically when there's been a death, other the children, surviving children worry about what's going to happen to me if my other parent dies, right? I'm worried about that. I'm worried about me if, if I die too. Parents' initial reaction may be to say, don't worry about that. Don't worry. It's not going to happen. Don't worry about that. Well, I'll ask the two of you as adults, whenever anyone has said to you, don't worry about something, guess what? You're still worried. Okay. That's really true of children. We, when a child says to a parent, let's say they've lost one parent, a treehouse, when a child says to the other one, well, what's going to happen to me if you die? This is what we encourage the surviving parent to do, to say, you know what? Dad's taking extraordinarily good care of himself. I'm making sure I go to the doctor. I'm making sure I stay healthy. But, but if anything were to happen to you, we have a plan. And Sue and Uncle Bill, you're going to be a part of their family. Typically, parents say, whoa, 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 Mary, that's way too much. And I say, if your kid is asking, they've thought through all of this. And kids are incredibly enriched by knowing you've got this, you've got a plan. There's no point in telling them it's not going to happen. It's already happened. Your immediate family has already had a death. They know it can happen. Are the odds infinitely small it will happen again? Sure. No one cares about odds. So we really encourage direct conversation within their developmental stage. A fourth, a four-year-old is not the same as a 16-year-old, but we really encourage direct talk, direct language. We don't say someone has passed away at Treehouse. We don't say so-and-so has been lost. For children, if you lose something, you find your sneaker under the bed. We use words like die. We, we, we speak very directly. I know at the beginning, it took us a really long time to say die, passed away, and anything that had to do with the the finality of it. Well, Karen, it's interesting that you say the finality of it. One of the tasks that we are really um, trying to put in play more now, and again, this is tasks versus the stages. One of the tasks is about reinvesting. And there's a term I just love. It's continuing bonds. You heard me say earlier that I don't like this next chapter, moving on. Every parent I've ever spoken with who has had a child die said to me, the number one concern is that the child's going to be forgotten. They don't want their child forgotten. And the idea of continuing bonds comes in there. The idea that your child, I think of it almost like will be in your back pocket, your husband, your wife will be in your back pocket. As you continue, they're in your back pocket. They're a part of you. And the term continuing bonds gives breath to the idea that there are healthy ways to stay connected to the person. We don't have to put them in a box and set it over there and start on a new path. Karen, what you're doing is an example of a continuing bond, an incredible one with your foundation, right? You think about your son, you're able to do much for others, and it's a continuing bond with him. There are other ways of having continuing bonds that are much, much easier, uh, much simpler. I had worked with a really adorable young man who was in his mid-20s, and he was fresh out of school, and he was a school teacher. His mother was a school teacher, and she had died very, very young of breast cancer. And he started a habit 
of when he drove home, having a conversation with his mother in the car. Hey, mom, uh, I needed you today. You could have helped me with this one kid. I could. And as a little conversation, he knows his mother is dead. He knows she's not answering, but it's a little bond that they have. And it's a continuing bond that's healthy, very, very healthy. So we encourage that. We encourage that. We encourage parents with the idea of continuing bonds, use the person's name often and casually. You could be watching a movie. Oh, your brother, he couldn't have sat through this movie. He would be climbing the walls. It's just a simple reference. It's natural. You're not going to have a bereavement session. You're not going to have just middle mentions. That's a continuing bond that we really encourage families to do. That was definitely something at the beginning that was very difficult, especially for my husband, because I kept talking about him and I would talk about him. And Megan knows his story. Like at dinners, we would go to with friends and I would say his name and he would look at the the other people's faces and they're kind of, oh, what do I say? How do I respond? And so he would say to me, like, you can't talk about him. And so I would say, yes, I can. And I'll, <laughs> and I'm going to. And I'm sorry that they're uncomfortable with it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that, that was, you know, it was healthy for me and healthy for my family to continue talking about him. And it wasn't your husband's style when he was with no, his friends. And, and that's, you know, and your job was not to convince him, no, 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 the way I'm doing it really is good. Give it a try. No, he had his style that worked for him. You had yours. And, you know, I love, Karen, that you were so open with your friends because very often your circle, your various circles, are really looking to you for, for cues as to, does she want to talk about it? Doesn't she want to talk about it? Is this a time where she wants to just relax and take it off the plate? People really don't know what to do, and they do look to you for cues. And it's incredible because you already have so much going on. The idea that the onus would be on the grieving to set the parameters and let people know where they are. Um, but it is the case. And the reason why it is important for you to send the cues is because your cues are going to change. One month, you may want to talk a lot about the person. And then you may hit a month where you're pulling back a little bit mm. and then come out again. And your friends have to kind of come in and out with you. And that's why, again, direct communication, if you can let your friends know, this is where I am, I'd appreciate if you could do X or Y. I'm a big believer in um, not waiting for people to have ESP. I think that's a long wait. Let people know what works for you. Um, and I've often had people say, well, Mary, does it mean as much if I have to say, hey, I need a walk once a week and I need a walk where I talk and you listen. Does it mean as much if I have to ask for it? And I'm so anti that. I don't care how that person got on the walk. I don't care if you had to suggest it, pick them up, provide the coffee. I don't care. <laughs> don't wait for ESP to kick in. It's a long and, and fruitless wait. So that's some really good advice um, for parents of who have lost children. How about some advice for 
friends or family members who have a friend or a family member who has lost a child? What what would you recommend they do to support their friend who's going through unexpected grief? Okay. I would suggest they get rid of a term that we all use today. And I'm going to, again, show my age here. Back in the day, when your friend disappeared during tough times, there was a phrase called a fair weather friend. And nobody wanted to be called a fair weather friend. Now, what I see a lot of is people saying, I'm going to give her space. As if they're being respectful, as if they're being sensitive. But at the end of the day, when you're giving someone space, you're leaving them alone. And it's very, very isolating. I am a believer in put on your, your heavy armor as a friend gets some thick skin and you keep plugging away. You call. And if, and if Megan, if you're not in the mood that day for a walk, okay, I'll try again in a few days. My suggestion to friends and family is get a thick skin. Don't take a no as a permanent no. Grief is constantly changing and moving. And keep asking, keep making suggestions, keep touching base. Um, I'm not a huge fan of texting. Um, I think voice matters. Um, but you know what? Texting is better than nothing. Keep plugging away and appreciate that your friend, it's going to change. What she wanted to do one week may not be what she wants to do another week. That's good advice. Better than, you know, I know there are these food meal chains and all that, and much of that's left outside the door in a disposable container. I appreciate all of that. I just love it when people have the courage to actually reach out. I have had more people say to me, Mary, I have watched people change supermarket aisles to avoid me. Yes. And that's hurtful. That's hurtful. That's really hurtful. And that's why I also say to parents, you know, parents can often be in a place where they're having a joyful moment. I'm all, I want joy back in everyone's lives. That is the goal. The goal is to be able to have what I refer to as multiple truths. You can have great joy at your child's graduation and also miss your husband. They can be both true at the same time. And I'll often say to people who are, let's say, at their kids' soccer game, and they're really enjoying it. You know, it's a pretty fall day and they're enjoying it and they actually don't have the loss on their minds, the death on their minds. And someone will come over and they'll say, I've been thinking about you, whatever, whatever. And I always tell those grieving parents, those grieving wives, those grieving husbands, in that moment, it may kind of be off-putting. It may not be the moment that you want someone to connect and let them know how badly you feel. I said, but this is what I think. It takes courage to approach you. I am forever grateful for people who approach you. But you have the right in that space to not have a little bereavement talk. So I have created what I call the sandwich. Um, and it's just a, and I have my clients practice it. I want you to first say, Thank you so much for coming over. It means a lot to me. But you know, right now, I'm so engrossed in this hockey game. But thank you so much for coming. 
you never want the person to feel badly for approaching you. Because I'll tell you, it's a lot easier to sit on the stands and look at you, look at you at a distance. So I like the sandwich. Thank them for coming over. But you're allowed to say, hey, I'm really enjoying this moment for what it is. But thank you so much for coming over. That's a great suggestion. Well, it's comes after, actually, you said I had 25 years experience. I'm older than when that was written. It's more like 30 <laughs> something years. Um, and these are, I learned a lot from my clients. You know, all the, the graduate programs and seminars and all that, I learn virtually everything from my clients. And when I have a misstep, they'll say, you know, Mary, I'm not ready for that. I'm here. I'm like, okay. And I pull back. My clients are incredible, incredible. And they're incredible to watch. They move very quickly. And I know that, you know, we have a saying at the bereavement center, people grieve in character. You bring you to bereavement. It is not, and I want to work with who's come through the door. I want to work with who's come through the door. People grieve in character. So much of what you have said today resonates with me. I think you might need your own podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're so easy to talk to. I'm pretending that this isn't being recorded and I'm just talking to two lovely women. Well, you have so much great wisdom to impart, and I'm sure it's because you've built such an incredible um, business in Westchester. How can people find you? Where can people find more resources on what you have to offer? Yes, we. I'm at the Bereavement Center of Westchester, and um, our. you can go online and find us at www.b as in boy, c as in cat, w as in wall, treehouse.org. So that's www.bcwtreehouse.org. We also have a phone number, 914-787-6158. But if you just Googled like bereavement in Westchester, you'll get there. You'll, you'll get there pretty quickly. We've been We've been around a long time. You'll get there pretty quickly. I know. It sounds like, Karen, you were so lucky to have this as a resource for you. Not everyone has these strong bereavement centers in their community. So do you do any virtual work? We did virtual work throughout all of COVID. Um, I was did a kicking and screaming. I am such an in-person person. I just, I and I'm, you know, again, my age, it doesn't help with that. But um, I decided that I had to not, what is the saying? Don't let perfection be the enemy of good. We did Treehouse virtually. And the amazing thing is the kids were actually used to doing everything virtually. I think we struggled more. Um, we are still doing virtual. I have a number. Throughout COVID, the Bereavement Center was able to offer through a grant um, pro bono for anyone who had a, a family member die of COVID. Um, so we got that word out to the to the local hospitals, and we were able to do that for a while. Some of those wives, and they really are mostly women that I'm working with whose husbands died of COVID, they are still not coming in to see me one-on-one, and I completely understand it. Um, so we're hybrid. You know, I would say two-thirds of my clients are kind of back in person. Treehouse started up two nights ago on Tuesday in person. We're one of the few around doing it in person. And we've got, you know, all our protocols, our masks, our temperature gauges, feeling very safe. I mean, that's, you know, the whole idea of Treehouse is to create a safe environment for people to talk openly. We need to have it be safe too from COVID. Um, But we are seeing one-on-one groups. Everything's back in the swing of it. But Zoom is still an option. Well, Mary, it has been a pleasure 
talking with you today. Thank you so much for sharing all your great information about grieving. And is there anything else that you want to tell us that we haven't, that you haven't had the opportunity to talk about today? You know, the only thing I would add is that the idea that um, death is death is death is really incorrect. We have learned at the Bereavement Center that how someone dies really matters. It matters in how long I'm likely to see someone. It The journey is actually quite different. And I'm, you know, in your reading and anyone's reading, you've probably come across the term anticipatory grief. When someone has been able to be a caregiver and watch someone change, even if they've been on parallel tracks, hopeful, clinical trial, trying something new, even while they're on that hopeful track, there's a part of them that's understanding they're changing. They're physically changing. That grief path, when you've been a caretaker or watched someone through an illness, is different than the path you're on when everything is so sudden. So that really does matter. And it it really informs our work at the bereavement center. So I would just want to underscore that, that bereavement can be looked at stages or tasks. Even within that, if you go down a couple of layers, it does matter how someone died. Mary, before you leave us, is there one activity or exercise or some instrument that you play that you might like to share with us? Anything you like to do in your personal time, a hobby? Um, My hobby. Um, Let's see. I pretend I'm a good skier with my family, (laughs) um, but I'm actually really good at après ski. That's that's my forte. (laughs) I let everybody else rip up the mountain and I'm back there with the fire going. I'm very good at après ski. I can relate. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for all your great advice today. And thanks for taking the time to be with us. And we hope you've enjoyed your first interview interview on a podcast. (laughs) You made it easy. You made it easy. I felt like I was in a living room just chatting with you. You made it easy. Thank you. This is Megan Ferraro and Karen Cohn from the Zach Foundation. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. We would be so grateful. Thank you. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon.